On this week's edition of New York Now, it's the start of a new school year. We'll speak with Melinda Person from NYSET. And later, we bring you along to the great New York State Fair just outside Syracuse. Plus, what's the future of AI in New York? We'll discuss. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. New York's migrant crisis has now turned into the blame game, with just about everyone pointing fingers and almost no one accepting responsibility. And unfortunately, that's not my opinion. That's actually what's happening. Last week, we told you how Governor Kathy Hochul has asked the White House for more help dealing with the crisis. And this week, she traveled to the White House to push that request. After a two-hour meeting, both Hochul and the White House issued separate statements, saying they'll work together to get more asylum seekers into jobs, as long as they're eligible. But as far as financial support, the White House kicked that to Congress, saying they should get involved as well. So now no one is really owning this crisis, with the closest person being New York City Mayor Eric Adams. He's had to manage it since it began last year, and he's called on other local leaders around the state to help out. But many say they don't want to, and Governor Hochul said last week that she won't force them. And that garnered this response from Mayor Adams this week. But I think this issue, I think the governor's wrong. She's the governor of the state of New York. New York City is in that state. Every county in this state should be part of this. We have 0.05 of the land mass in this state, and we have 90, almost 99 percent of the migrant asylum seekers. This is, a, this is a real leadership moment. But since there's no real update there, we're gonna move on for the week and instead talk about artificial intelligence. Zach Williams from Bloomberg Law has been covering that in New York. Zach, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So artificial intelligence is something that has really been blowing up with things like we hear about ChatGPT, we hear about uh, stuff in cars, things like that. How is AI used in our real lives right now? Well, I think people would be surprised how much artificial intelligence has been around for many, many years. Yeah. Um, you know, from the suggested movies and TV shows on Netflix that you see, to uh, spell check on your computer, to the automated uh, screening tools that employers use when they look at your resume. That, that last one might be something that most people don't really think about, but you know, most employers for years now have just looked for certain keywords mm. in your resume or your cover letter. And if those kind of, you know, meet their algorithm, then you're the person that they agree to meet in person. So there's all sorts of different things. So, you know, artificial intelligence is really just this range of tools, these, you know, automation, machine learning is something you hear a lot about, mm -hmm. but really it's just a whole bunch of math kind of figuring out um, patterns and what, might fit it um, and what people you know want to use. And something like this continues to kind of grow and emerge and people are concerned about where they might be seeing it and might interacting with them. We often get into a conversation about regulation and in New York, I don't know where we are in AI regulation, but let's kind of zoom out for a second because I know that you've gone to some conferences in the past uh, couple of months and talked to a lot of people about this. What does it look like around the country? How are other states thinking about AI? Well, it's been a little piecemeal. You know, there's a lot of political gridlock in D.C., so not a lot has gotten done in Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, quite a few states have set up commissions or task forces, you know, to really look at how AI or automated systems are already used in their states. 
create some sort of reporting mechanism. And some have even gone so far, like Vermont, to actually establish a a state division of artificial intelligence, oh, wow. which is really just a couple people kind of in an office, you know, tasked with the idea of, you know, really thinking ahead what um, might be good uses of artificial intelligence and where might they want to pause and think about the consequences before implementing them. So what about New York? I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't heard a lot about AI in the legislature as they've been, you know, passing legislation. Um, I know you asked the governor about it in August uh, and she had a response kind of saying, that she wants to take a look at it. Um, but can you actually just expand on what she said? How is the mm. state looking at this right now? Well, right now, they're kind of like looking at how they should look at it. Yeah. You know, there's, there is legislation. <laughs> they're planning to plan. <laughs> exactly. There, there was legislation passed um, by the Senate and the Assembly this year that would set up a state commission. They would, you know, have lots of smart people. They would write a report. They would recommend how to maybe deal with AI. The governor suggested that she might go her own way. Governors don't like these study bills after all. Mm -hmm. And set up some sort of a summit. But, um, you know, there's a long-term, you know, will they take our jobs, Terminator kind of class of problems with AI potentially. Right. But there's also much more immediate things. We got the elections in 2024, um, legislation that passed this year that Hochul could sign would ban deep fake revenge pornography. Oh my so gosh. that's where people take, you know, um, these generative AI like ChatGPT or Dolly for images and, you know, maybe take someone's photo and put it on a pornographic image. Mm. And that's not technically illegal right now. Revenge pornography, which is some, you know, an intimate image that maybe you took with someone's permission or without their permission, but then disseminate, that's illegal in, in New York, but not if you fake it. So that could end pretty soon. And I think that's like kind of really um, the first instance where we'll see kind of like computer generated fakes becoming illegal. Now with the elections coming up, this could become a huge issue. That's what I was just thinking is like, if, if they can get away with it with, you know, fake revenge porn, what's to stop somebody from doing a, a AI generated video of a presidential candidate saying something crazy to convince the public that they shouldn't vote for them, something like that. I mean, all of this is um, unregulated and, yeah. you know, it, it would really depend. There are current laws. Now say, say Lord forbid, somebody decided that they would impersonate Dan Clark and say things that uh. Dan Clark didn't say. <laughs> say, you know, vote for me, Dan Clark says I'm great on New York Now. Now, maybe there are issues with um, defamation or libel, um, but, you know, your likeness is different than your copyright. Right. You know, and we've already seen this with authors, even on, on go to Amazon and you'll find books that are written in the style of this person or that person. Now, some authors have tried to sue or protest, get it delisted saying, hey, I didn't write this, but it wasn't like they're claiming you wrote it. They're just saying it's in the style of John Grissom mm. or it's in, you know, um, because they asked Chat, GT, uh, Chat GPT, please write this like you know Dan Clark would write it. So there's all sorts of different applications right now. You know, New York now needs to be worried. State legislature <laughs> should be concerned. Um, you know, AI has just um, this ability to really shake things up in all sorts of interesting ways, kind of like social media ten years ago. I know I could be fake right now, and our audience would have no idea. He's not. I, I'm not fake. And I guess you don't know if I'm telling the truth. I, that's, that's the problem with it, is how could you ever know? And when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking of companies like OpenAI that, that does ChatGPT. And if the state starts to introduce regulations and stuff, do you see this being a big fight? Well, you know, we're already seeing um, companies kind of on a charm offensive out there. You know, yeah. Amazon, Microsoft, Google, you know, have all been, you know, meeting with state lawmakers across the country, with federal lawmakers, and just trying to put a good 
space on AI. And it is true, there are a lot of great things that these automated systems are capable of. You know, they're much touted, say, with medicine and spotting things like cancer and stuff, but we've also seen in the history of their application that there's a lot of hype, like yeah. Watson, which beat a human in, a, in, um, in jeopardy. You know, they tried to get it to look at cancer. You know, these tools, when they're made for a specific purpose, they're really good at it. And when they're made for a different purpose, they can go in all sorts of different ways. So I think we're going to see a lot of piecemeal legislation on, say, you know, elections or, um, you know, what I mentioned with deep fakes. Mm -hmm. um, but a comprehensive, you know, um, you know, what do we do about the robots totally changing our world solution, I think is at least a few years off. Um, a lot of people liken it to nuclear weapons. Uh -huh. You know, you're going to need to see this at an international level. Um, to really deal with it in a way that will save humanity forever, hopefully. <laughs> it's really <laughs> it's interesting. I, it is a big question, and we'll have to have you back to talk about it because AI seems to be just kind of getting more into our lives, so we'll have to keep a close eye on it. Zach Williams from Bloomberg Law, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And we'll link to some of Zach's stories on our website. That's also where you can find more news from the week, stories from across the state, and more. All that is at NYNow. Org. But turning now to education in New York. For most kids and parents in New York, the new school year starts next week, and it's a really interesting time for that. This year is just the second school year since COVID. Last year was relatively normal, but school leaders and education officials started to notice that the pandemic had taken a toll on pretty much everyone. A lot of students now have gaps in learning and trauma from the pandemic, but teachers do as well making the state's teacher shortage worse at a critical time in education. Same time, schools in New York are preparing for another challenge, the state's influx of asylum seekers. Children who are new to this country will be placed in local school districts, wherever they are. And it's not often that schools in New York have had to deal with something like that, alongside other challenges that don't seem to let up. So for more on all that, we turn this week to Melinda Person, president of New York State United Teachers the Teachers Union in New York. Melinda, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course, anytime. So this school year is interesting because in the past few years, students and teachers have had to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic and then coming out of that. So there's been a lot of shifting in terms of what school looks like for teachers and students. How are you feeling going into this school year? It's kind of the first school year where COVID seems to be even less of a problem in schools. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really optimistic about this year. Our members tell us that last year there was still some recovering, a lot of focus on learning loss and getting kids back into normal routines. Sure. And this year looks like it's going to be, you know, really normal <laughs> um, in the sense that uh, we will be able to focus on uh, sort of the, the normal problems that we have in a school year, like the teacher mm -hmm. shortage, which is uh, a topic we've been talking about a lot, yeah. uh, but also focusing on kidding, getting kids back on track. Yeah, exactly. In the past few weeks, the state has announced some funding for mental health resources for students in schools, uh, a really good initiative because, as, as you know, I'm sure, and as I know, that kind of trauma really manifests in a way for these students that could affect their academic performance, their lives. But I'd like to kind of flip that and look at teachers. You know, during the pandemic, teachers had to shift really quickly away from what they've been doing for several years to, we're teaching you from home now. Some people are teaching to an empty classroom over Zoom. I think that there are mental health implications there as well. What do you think about that? Should, should we be doing more for teachers in that sense? Most definitely. And 
I don't mean emphasizing self-care because our members do have enough to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so we're providing resources that uh, our educators can take advantage of during the school day, uh, mindfulness training, things like that. Those are the types of things that we're pushing for at the state level to help support our members. We have a new hotline that our members can call when they're in crisis That's and great. get the resources and referrals that they need. That's great. I mean, that kind of thing, if I were a teacher and I'd gone through that, just as, as a journalist gone, have, having gone through that, there are certain parts of it that I think you carry with you a little bit longer. And especially for teachers, they have to go back into that same classroom and kind of come out of the pandemic and figure out what's our new normal there. And during the pandemic, we saw this problem continue of the teacher shortage. More people were kind of going into retirement rather than you know staying in because they didn't really see a future there in the next couple of years. At the same time, we don't see as many teachers coming in, new teachers coming in. Um, it's been a problem before the pandemic, the teacher shortage, and it's a big question, but what do you think we should do about it? Well, we have a number of solutions. One of the, prob one of the solutions that we're launching this year is a program called Educator Inspired, mm. and it is an effort to lift up the profession and remind our members who they are for yeah. their students and for their communities. We're asking people to tell stories about their favorite educator, somebody who inspired them, someone who got them into the field that they are currently in, and almost every adult can tell me who their favorite teacher was and they light up when they talk about them. Yeah. So why don't we start with you? Tell, <laughs> tell me a little bit about your favorite teacher. I will tell you about my favorite teacher. His name is Roy Pratt. He taught English for middle and high school where I went to school in central New York and Shenango County in Afton, New York. He was just brilliant, paid extra attention to the kids. We could always rely on him for space at lunch or after school to just hang out. Especially for me, I had a lot of family problems at home and it made such a difference to have him there. He also got me my first reporting job, weirdly. I started as a uh, reporter at 16 covering uh, car racing in Afton, New York, and I would put out a weekly story about the races. So he kind of started me on my track. And it's those kind of teachers that I think don't get enough recognition. You know, these are, as we were talking before we started recording, this guy to me was like a third parent. He really was. He was the person that I leaned on in every part of my life. And I have to imagine you hear those stories all the time too. We do. Our members love other people's children, right? Yeah. They take care of them like their own. And it is, uh, it's past due that we really lift up their voices and, and remind them who they are. Yeah. Do you think, you know, getting more people into the profession, is, the, is it about that recognition or is it about things that are a little bit more tangible? Should teachers just get paid more to get people into these jobs? <laughs> That's part of it. Yeah. I mean, we want our professions to be sustainable and enticing professions. One sure. of the things that we're focusing on is fixing tier six, for instance. Mm. The pension system for our newest members is not as generous as for our more senior members. Yeah. And one of the benefits of going into public service in general is dignity in retirement and being able to look ahead and retire after 30 years. Absolutely. And that's something that we want all of our members to be able to experience. You know, there's another thing happening in schools right now that I find really interesting, and it brings teachers into this conversation about what are their jobs going to look like in the next couple of years. The state education department is considering new graduation requirements. We don't know what they're going to look like. A panel is going to present them to the regents who are going to either accept them or reject them. But what may happen is either changing or taking away the regents' exams. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, these, the regents have been in place for a couple of decades now. 
I took them, a lot of my friends took them. What do you think about ending them or changing these graduation requirements in general? I think that what we're looking at is not necessarily ending the regions, but offering multiple pathways to demonstrating your readiness to go out into the world and enter higher ed or a career, general requirements to demonstrate that you're ready for life. And tests are not the only way that you can demonstrate learning. When I was in high school, I used performance assessments um, to not instead of the global studies regions. Uh, and this was 30 years ago. So this isn't a new concept, uh, but it's something that hasn't been adopted uh, in a major way here in New York. And we're looking forward to seeing some changes coming out of this commission's work. Do you think it'll be good for teachers to have those different pathways to graduation and different alternatives? I was thinking of it as, does this make teachers' jobs easier, harder, or does it just make them different? I think it will depend on the type of class that you're teaching. Yeah. A lot of educators would like to be able to go more broad or deep into the curriculum and not be driven by a specific test. So, but educators can, can have a lot of say over how this is developed. We have a task force right now that is looking into this mm -hmm. and they're gonna guide our decision making and the recommendations that we make. Interesting. So this school year as well, it, some things are different in some schools in terms of um, immigration. So we've had an influx of asylum seekers coming to New York over the past two years. About 100,000 people, more than that. We don't know the exact number. Obviously, they have children with them who are going to have to go to school with us. Um, with Not with me, but with people in general in New York. You wrote an op-ed in the Times Union recently looking at these relocation efforts and basically saying we need to coordinate this in a way that makes sense. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so we've already seen right here in the capital region uh, an influx of students into the Mahanasin School District. And yeah. I think it's really a great example of how our public schools are prepared to welcome all students that enter their doors every day. That is what we do. We do what we need to do to take care of the kids. And in Mahanasin, our members from all the surrounding districts showed up when the students arrived and helped process them into the district and provided translation services, brought food and clothes and all of the, the things that families need when they're, they're moving into a new place. The thing that we are focused on right now is, okay, now that we are beginning to get information about where students will arrive, we need to make sure we're providing those districts with the financial resources to provide the, the education that the kids need. We know certain districts are more prepared and capable. They sure. have the teachers, they have the space, right? We should do this in a really thoughtful way so that kids are placed where they can get the best care and education. Can you break that down a little bit? What, what specialized uh, you know, care do these kids need in these schools as they're coming here? I mean, this is the first time, presumably, that they will be in the U.S. education system. Um, we don't necessarily know where they're learning is. Uh, what does that look like for them coming into the system? So oftentimes, kids coming into the system from outside the country will need case management services. Mm. We definitely know we need ENL teachers yeah. and teachers who are prepared to provide education to um, our new neighbors. And some districts have the, this type of staff and others don't. So wherever we're sending, whichever communities we're sending them, we should align the resources and the, the, the students. So we'll see how that works out when the school year starts and everything like that. Melinda Person from New York State United Teachers, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. And if the school year hasn't already started, most kids are heading back to classrooms this coming week. We're gonna take a break from the news now and bring you to Syracuse, or actually to Gettys, a small town just outside Syracuse. That's where every year the great New York State Fair is held. 
as I like to say, the fair is really a love letter to the rest of New York. So this year, we sent a crew again to bring the fair to you. New York Now reporter Chantel Destra has that story. It's a wonderful day here at the 2023 Great New York State Fair in Syracuse, New York. Visitors have traveled from near and far to experience all that the fair has to offer, which is also the longest running state fair in the country. Come along as we experience fan favorites and also the newest exhibits making their debut at the fair this year. To kick things off, we caught up with Sean Hennessy. So I just want to welcome you all to the 2023 Great New York State Fair. It is wonderful to be able to be with you here as the newly minted director of the Great New York State Fair. Yay, yay. After serving as interim director last year, the governor officially appointed Hennessy as director at the start of this year's fair. Oh, I was just shocked. I really was when she announced it. I really didn't know it was coming. And, uh, you know, I'm a longtime public servant. You know, I work with a couple of different agencies. And to have this honor to work with the folks here at, on the ground, and spe especially Commissioner Ball, uh, and for Governor Hochul, is just really a, a true honor. It really is. Yes, awesome. And what was your vision for the State Fair this year? Well, really to re-engage with agriculture. I mean, as you see around here, um, you know, we have what's called Voice of the Farmer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're an agricultural-based fair, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot of people see the bling. They see the circus, the midway, and all the great food that we have here. But really, when it boils down to, it boils down to agriculture and inclusion. Hennessy was with local farmers and elected officials to unveil the Voice of the Farmer Garden, which is the first-of-its-kind farmer's garden at a state fair in the U.S., featuring more than 35 different types of vegetables, herbs, fruits, and other plants. It was also Agriculture Career Day at the fair, so we caught up with Richard Ball, Commissioner of the State Department of Agriculture. For him and a lot of people, the fair is about bringing New York's agriculture industry to New Yorkers, especially the young ones. We'll have about a million New Yorkers, people from around the region, Indiana, all over the country, come here and have an opportunity to have a touch point with agriculture. Right. Um, the importance of food, the importance of nutrition today, more important than ever in our lives, and uh, just an, a touch point. For some of our young people, hopefully a career touch point. This is an opportunity for so many young people, moms and dads, to, to see that there are opportunities in the food system. And that's more than just what grows in the ground. The fair is also home to hundreds of animals for a two-week span, including roosters, who have a daily crowing competition. The day we were there, the winner was Frankie and his owner, Henry Pascal. He crows. He likes whistling. He likes a lot of attention. So if you give him a lot of attention, he usually crows. Yeah. And he likes his hands. So that's the way he really crows. Awesome. So how will you be rewarding Frankie for being the winning rooster today? Any special treats or anything? when he gets in the cage, give him some pellets and stuff, some nice. of the feed and some maybe some bread. Awesome. And he'll go back in this cage and be a rooster. We then caught up with Kelly Jean, superintendent of the poultry barn, to unpack what makes for a good rooster crow. Well, he was a little slow, but we asked for audience participation. And they started cheering for him and clapping. And some of the big roosters loved the noise. And then all of a sudden, he came from zero and won the competition. By this point in the day, we'd covered a lot of ground, and my stomach was rumbling. The fair had so many different types of food to offer, from burgers to fried foods and pastries, but we decided to try an ultimate fair fan favorite food, and that was the famous Gianelli sausage. Over the years, Gianelli has become a staple at the fair. It's even said politicians have to eat a Gianelli sausage for good luck. 
The company ended its partnership at the fair in 2021 and doesn't have a standalone booth anymore. But the sausage is still offered at several different stands at the fair. Okay, well, I'm super excited to try my very first Gianelli sausage. So let's see what it's all about. Mm. <laughs> to keep in the spirit of bucket list items at the fair, we thought it was about time to head to the dairy building and see this year's butter sculpture. Now we're at the butter exhibit, and as you can see, it's a fan favorite. This year's theme is dairy every day is a healthy way to nourish our brains, bones, and bodies. Next, we made our way inside the Expo Center for an attraction showcasing history and human evolution. That was the dinosaur exhibit, where I was sure we'd see my favorite historic beast. <laughs> this attraction features over 60 life-size and realistic-looking dinosaurs, transcending visitors back to a time when dinosaurs roamed the Earth years ago. Some are as tall as 35 feet and have a width of 80 feet. Visitors, including the governor, were able to see, touch, and hear the large beast. After learning about agriculture and history for most of the day, we knew we couldn't leave the fair without heading to the carnival for some fun. We tried to win a big prize, but could not successfully make a basketball basket. And while I was having fun shooting hoops, my crew decided they wanted to have some of their own fun. Next, we decided to get some sweet treats. I opted for a beignet while my crew treated themselves to some fried dough. Only two of the endless offerings of tasty desserts at the fair. Believe it or not, today was actually my very first time at the state fair, but I had so much fun, I'll definitely be back again next year. Chantel Destra, New York Now. That was Chantel Destra reporting. The State Fair runs through Monday. You can buy tickets online or at the fair's gates. We'll link to their website on ours. That's nynow.org. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.